0: As Pastor Garrett comes forward, uh, we're going to pray for the word and pray that the Spirit is upon him. Lord, we do thank you for your presence here this morning, Uh, the promise and the hope of the gospel. Now, as we hear and receive from your word, as you speak uh, powerfully through your scriptures, as your spirit is here with Pastor Garrett, Lord, we ask that we would be open and sensitive to the Spirit, And that uh, through the word preached this morning, we'd be shaped more and more into the likeness of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. When Pastor Steve invited me to join him in uh, the Lenten series that he was doing this year, I was delighted to say yes. But a little bit surprised when he said, well... We're doing the book of Judges. <laughs> I was also, however, very pleased with that because it happens to be one of my very favorite books of all the places, but it is indeed a very messy story. And uh, we're, we're gonna continue uh, with that this morning. First of all, uh, perhaps you don't know all about me, but then I'm not gonna tell you all. <laughs> Uh, I'm Garrett Kudot, my wife and Ruth, and I have joined Princeton CRC uh, last summer, and we're delighted to be here. We were missionaries in Chicago, and then later on for many years in Asia, both Japan and the Philippines, and we were delighted to serve the CRC in both places and have many wonderful memories of serving that way, but we're also very happy to be back in the states and and uh, we've been back since 19 since 2001 and uh, we have been retired for some time and uh, are enjoying retirement but also keeping busy so we're I'm very glad to be with you here this morning and to share together from the Word of God the things that we need to know about the story of Jesus in his uh, Series so far, Uh, Pastor Steve led us through the stories of Ehud and Barak and Deborah and then Gideon and then Jephthah, all four of them um, not too easy to always understand what God is doing in the lives of the people of Israel through those judges. But we, we were, have been acquainted now with the cycle, right? We're, we're cycling through this book because it is a cycle of activities. They get into trouble because they fall into idolatry and then they get into more trouble when they, they, God leaves them wandered around not knowing where they're going because they don't have a king. Nobody, everybody does what they want to do on their own. And so the enemies come and take them captive or bother them in some other ways. And then they cry to God, and then God in His patience listens to them again and sends them a judge to give them some relief from their enemies. And then they go right back to the old cycle again. And this has been the story all the way through the book. And it's not any different with the last one. The last judge of the book of Judges is, of course, Samson. And we're going to start there this morning, not so much with what he actually did at the end, but first of all, how he came to be the judge and, and how God found him, so to speak, in his plan to use him for the people of Israel. So we're going to turn first to Judges chapter 13. And if we can get the slide up there for uh, the verses that we would like to read this morning. Judges 13, the first five verses first. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. THE ANGEL OF THE LORD APPEARED TO HER AND SAID, YOU ARE STERILE AND CHILDLESS, BUT YOU ARE GOING TO CONCEIVE AND HAVE A SON. NOW SEE TO IT THAT YOU DRINK NO WINE OR OTHER FERMENTED DRINK AND THAT YOU DO NOT EAT ANY UNCLEAN THING. BECAUSE YOU WILL CONCEIVE AND GIVE BIRTH TO A SON. NO RAZOR MAY BE USED ON HIS HEAD. Because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The enemy that this chapter tells us about, as well as the chapters that follow. The last judge, Samson, has to face the enemies called the Philistines. Now, they're a little bit different kind of enemy. They're not the same type of enemy we've seen before. This people are invaders from the outside. They were not there before. When Joshua cleaned the land, so to speak, there were no Philistines yet. They came in from the outside and probably were quite a bit different in their culture, and in their language, and in their religion from the other evil uh, enemies that they had. So it wasn't so much the Baals this time, but it was Dagon who was the center of attention in, in the battle for the heart of the people of Israel. And it is, there's people called the Philistines that are really very much a superior power. They, they just had more culture. They had a longer history of development. They were very good at iron and uh, building things. They had a beautiful temple that they built on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea in the city of Ashdod. Uh, they had strong political alliances together. There were five uh, ruling uh, princes, so to speak. Of the five city states, they're well known in the Bible. They're, they continue to exist long after this as well. Uh, they had five major cities, and th- those five are are um, Gaza first. To get they're still there today. By the way, it's uh, the Gaza Strip, and from Gaza, you go a little further north, and you come to, uh, to uh, Ashkelon, and then if you go a little further north, you come to Ashdod. Those are on the, on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and there were two other cities, both Gath and Ekron, further inside. Uh, they, they took over the territory that was assigned to the tribe of Judah in the south, and just next to that, the tribe of Dan, a little bit further north. And even into some of the territory of Ephraim, they, they really took hold of the power structure of the whole countryside. And the problem here was that it was very difficult for the people of Israel to live a normal life. They, they were under the control of a foreign invader. Now, maybe you, you kind of get the idea what that means. That's what Russia is trying to do to the Ukraine and not too successful. But that's what Hitler did to the country where I lived in 1940. He moved in with some military power, but especially political power, too. Took over the whole country. And from then on, we had to obey Hitler instead of our queen. Of course, we didn't want to do that. It was a foreign power that abused us, so to speak. It's a very proper term to use. But the result was that it was very hard for the people of Israel to to make a normal way of life. In fact, it was so bad, and to next week we're gonna talk a little bit about what happens to the tribe of Dan. But the whole tribe of Dan was squeezed, squeezed between the territory that they did not get and the territory that was not theirs. And under the control of the Philistines, many of them lost their their, own cities, their own villages, their own control. And they moved actually into the territory of of, uh, Judah, the northern territory of Judah, in a camp, uh, like a refugee camp, very similar to many of the Ukrainian people who have departed from their country because they wanted to get out from under the control of the Russian forces moving in. And this kind of a situation is, of course, very disastrous. So no wonder that the people of Israel were looking for a hope of relief. But now once again, we don't read anything about someone appointed by God to be raised up to be a judge like Barak or Deborah or Gideon or Jephthah. No one like that on the scene. In fact, God does a very unusual thing here in this case. He sends his angel to a woman. We don't even know her name. The Bible doesn't (laughs) record her name. That already is kind of an indication that God is doing something very different here. But she and her husband, Manoah, are part of the tribe of Dan. And they're living in this campground area, probably wondering what God is going to do now, now that they are really in trouble. And so the angel comes and announces to the wife of Manoah that a son will be born from her. Wow. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, God is going to do that a few more times. He's going to come to Hannah and tell her that she will get a son. And she came to Ruth through the whole story of Ruth and sent her a son as well. And then from that son, we get later on his grandson David. But, of course, we are immediately thinking of Mary, who in her virginhood received a message from God that she would also receive a son. And, of course, he becomes our Lord and Savior. So Samson was born in order that he might begin to save Israel. To begin to. It's not going to do the whole thing. And yet, when we turn to the story that happens after this, it doesn't sound much like he's saving much of anything. He's having a lot of trouble with the Philistines. In fact, the power of the Philistines is what becomes his own problem. Some very strange details are found in the chapters that follow. I'm not going to read chapters 14 and 15. And we'll go through that story. But I do want to highlight some very important things. Samson is fascinated by the Philistines. They have the power. And Samson somehow, because he received from God the spirit of power, seems to be struggling what that power really means and how to use it, how to be the opposite of what the Philistines are. He's not very successful in that until the end of his life. But he's fascinated especially by the women of the Philistines. I don't know why. Perhaps they were more beautiful than the women of Israel. We don't know. But he falls in love with a woman not too far from him in a village of Timnah. And there he says, I want to marry this lady. I want her to be my wife. He persuaded finally his parents to go with him. And in all that process that before the wedding comes, he is confronted suddenly by a lion. You remember that story? And he's not all. He, his parents are somewhere else. They're on the two different routes of, to Timnah. But the lion f- faces Samson, and Samson is filled with the spirit of God, and he takes that lion and he rips it apart and puts the carcass down, and then goes back and with his parents go, goes to the, prepare for the wedding. And then you know the story that when they actually came to the wedding a little bit li- later, uh, Samson went aside and saw what happened to the lion. And there lies the lion, the carcass of the lion, and it's filled with a beehive. And in that beehive, of course, is honey, which he takes out, tastes it, how good it is. And his parents are still on the, some other road. And he goes over there where they are and gives them some of the, Honey doesn't tell them where this came from." And that becomes a riddle for Samson. He somehow invented this riddle. And you remember that at the wedding, he was challenging his companions in the wedding, the 30 of his companions that were given to him, this riddle. And the riddle is this, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. They couldn't figure it out. And so finally, they manipulate his bride to get Samson to tell her what is the secret of this riddle. What's the answer? And finally, she gets that out of Samson. And so they announce the answer. And the answer is, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Wow. And this sets the stage for a showdown between the Philistines and Samson. He is extremely angry. And you, you can see his anger and his frustration come out. And what happens after this is just a mess. I mean, first of all, he is so mad, so angry, and he goes out because he has to pay the, the, uh, the prize of the riddle. <laughs> you remember, the prize was 30 bu- sets of clothes. And so he goes out and he, whatever he wherever he found all these people, but he killed 30 young men, took their clothes, and brought them to the companions that he had at the wedding and threw it at them almost and ran off in a, in a, in a huff. What happened then is that they gave his wife to somebody else. Because he had not stayed at the wedding. So, Samson, main matter yet, he catches 300 foxes and ties their tails together in pairs and puts torches in between those tails and sends them off into the Philistine harvest of grapes and wheat and whatnot all. and they burn a whole bunch of this down. Now there's a real war between Samson and the Philistines. So the Philistines come to capture him and they find him finally somewhere in Judah. And there, the Judah people had been forced to tie him up. But of course, you know what happens when Samson gets tied up and he gets riled. They just fell off like it was pieces of toilet paper. And he picks up a donkey's jaw that was happened to lie in a fresh donkey's jaw, and he kills 1,000 of the Philistine soldiers that had come to capture him. Wow. Talk about revenge. <laughs> he was really violently in, in this stage, and you can see how he abuses the power that God has given him. God didn't call him to do that. and yet through that, he does rescue Israel from some of the power of the Philistines. Sometime later, we don't know exactly how long, he, met, he went to the city of Gaza, way down in the southern area. And there he spent the night with a prostitute. And uh, the, the Philistines said, hey, we've got him this time. And they closed the city gate. And this was a really heavily guarded city. Well built. A gate that could not just be, you know, torn down. So, in the middle of the night, Samson gets up, goes to the gate, picks up the whole thing, the gates, the the posts, everything, puts it on his shoulders and carries it all the way to the city of Hebron, just outside the city, puts it down on a hill. Now, that must be at least 30, 40 kilometers to go that distance. That must have been quite a feat. Note how his power is used again and again. In some way to defend Israel, but in another way to please Samson. He is—he's doing his own battle. In fact, when we get to really look at him, he looks like not so much a leader at the head of an army because he has no army. He is a superman, right? He doesn't need an army. He is a super person. He can do everything he wants, because he's got all the power that he needs in himself. And this is a very strange thing, that God would use this man, who's like a one-man army, to defeat the Philistines. And yet, that's what God did. In all of this, he was still being used by God to defend his people, Israel, against the power of the Philistines. But then use and abuse of power is not a stranger to us, is it? We live in a world that abuses power all the time. All we have to do is take a good look at what's going on in the international world today. We can see the Russian military might, even though right now it doesn't look like all that much, But the Russian military might is pretty big compared to what Ukraine is. And we see this Russian might messing up the country, destroying pretty much everything that's inside. It sounds like a a world war, at least for the people of Ukraine it is, because everything is gone. It's all destroyed by the mighty power of the Russian military. This is the abuse of power. Big, big Russia over little, little Ukraine. And we've seen that throughout the history of the world. It's been done again and again. It happened in the biblical times. It happened in historical times. It's happening in our time. Always the big power abusing its power and laying it on the heads and the lives of the poor people. Nations use power to take advantage over other nations. But also, it's common in our everyday life. We see not only military might used and abused, but economic power. We Americans have been very good at that. We have gone into many different countries with economic power and set up international giants of of communities of economic power, companies and trade routes and whatnot all, and we control so much of the world through our economic power. While many poor people who work for that economic power barely exist in their daily life with just a little money, enough maybe to close and feed the children, but barely. But even in our own daily life, we see power. power. Power comes and it tempts us to use it to gain prestige or welfare benefits for ourselves. We just think about the many ways in which that's possible. The rich, for example, are uh, very quick to snap up all the most beautiful properties along Lake Michigan right on the shore, right on the dunes, where everybody would love to have a home like that, but of course, they don't have the economic power, so only those who have economic power can do that. And in the meantime, there are many thousands of children in the bigger cities in Michigan who would love to sometimes spend some time at that lake in Michigan, that the Michigan so wondrously boasts of, and they can't, and they don't, because they're too poor. When many items are scarce, as we found at the beginning of the uh, epidemic in the stores, uh, uh, you, know, you know, all the shelves suddenly are going empty and they're going empty fast. Now, someone who lives from check to check for his family to be fed and closed can't use money unless he uses credit and that isn't very wise either to go and, you know, get something From those shelves before they're all gone. But we who have some money in the bank or money in our pockets, we'll take some extra ones. Or maybe you didn't, I don't know. But you were tempted to, because pretty soon there is no toilet paper, or pretty soon there is no something else. And so you bought ahead. That's the economic power at work, whether we like it or not, but we certainly are quick to do that. Many items are used that way. But there's not just things, there's a lot of other ways in which power is used and abused. Even just your physical size. Just think of that. The physical size of your body can be very, very empowering in situations and keep people uh, at their distance because they don't wanna meet you in that dark alley, right? We can use our physical power. Some of us don't have much of that. Well, we'll use something else. Maybe you have a very sharp mind. You, you You have a mind that goes 100 miles an hour when most of us can only go about five. Maybe you use that, and you can use that. Certainly you can use that to gain power and control over something, a situation, or someone else. It's very easy to do if you have that power. Because you see, power is something that we all kind of crave. we like to have some control and some power over other things and over other people and over situations that we are not happy about. We like power because it gives us control. And that is one thing that God is showing us here, that that control is wrong. That control is not what He wants. He doesn't want us to control, but he wants us to be obedient. Maybe you have a quick tongue. There's another way in which you can use and abuse power. A tongue that lets other people know that you are good and someone else is not. And that you're better than the one over there. And so forth and so on. Let me tell you about, and then, you know, the power flows. Or maybe... Maybe it's even just something like your good looks. If you happen to be a very beautiful woman, you'd be surprised how much power there is in that to gain control over a situation, over an opportunity, over an advancement. Words, thoughts, deeds, they all come together with the same message to us. Use me because I can give you control. Let me use... N.T. Wright for a moment here. I know that Pastor Steve Wright, uh, quotes him once in a while, and, and I love N.T. Wright as well. He said this in one of his earlier books about Jesus. The world in its present stage is out of tune with God's ultimate intention. And there will be a great many things deeply woven into our imagination, and even in our personalities, to which the only Christian response should be, no, no, Jesus does not want me to live like that. It's exactly right. The world in which we live always does things just the opposite of what God wants. And so, when we see that, when we're tempted to that, we must say, no, not that, that is not The way Jesus lives. Jesus told his followers that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. The story of Samson, however, does not um, end here. It, It does not end with power and control, in fact, it ends quite differently. And for that, we'd like to read from chapter 16, verses four and five and verses 29 and 30. It's both the end and the the beginning and the end of the last uh, story in in the life of Samson. Can we have that for us, please? Judges 16, verses four and five and 29 and 30. There we go. Some time later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength, and how we can overpower him so he may, we may tie him up and s- subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1100 shekels of silver. Then verse 29, then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Samson's messy story gets stranger yet. Samson falls once again for another Philistine woman, Delilah. You know about Delilah, don't you? She is employed by her rulers, the rulers of the Philistines. They got to find out somehow to control this Samson because he's uncontrollable. They don't know what to do. And so when he finally winds up in close to them again, they promise her 1,100 shekels of silver each. So times five, that's 5,500 shekels of silver. Wow, that's a lot of money. Probably close to 150 pounds of silver, real silver. And that, I don't know what that is on today's market, but it could be quite a sum. Anyway, so she sets the game with, with Samson. So she plays the game, and so does he. he. She asks him, how can I bind you so that, what can I do so that you will become meek? I don't like you the way you are, Samson. Make yourself weak. And Samson plays the game and he says, the first time he tells her, well, if I were bound with seven fresh thongs, you could, I would become impotent. You know, you could do anything you want. Of course, then the Philistines are arousing, him. she says, hey, Samson, the Philistines are here. And of course, he like every other, tears the thongs off his arms and takes, his freedom. The second time, he said to her, if they tie me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I will become as meek as a lamb. But of course, the same story there, that didn't happen. The third time, he was a little closer to the truth when he said, weave the seven braids of my hair right into the loom that you have there so that it's all intertwined and then make sure that you fastened the pin very tightly at the end. Then he says, I will be helpless. But again, the, when the Philistines showed up, he took off the, the, the loom, everything ripped it out, and once again, he was the uncontrollable Samson. Then finally, after very much tears and wh- wh- whining, she got the truth out of him. He told her everything of what he was. Remember at the beginning of our reading, we saw this word, Nazarite. Samson was made by God to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was someone dedicated to God. Dedicated to God in every way so that he was clean. So that he could not drink any wine and he could not have a razor touch his head. He could always eat only unclean food. I'm not sure Samson was good doing that, but this is the person he was supposed to be. And so he said to her, if you cut my hair, I will become as little as a lamb. And that's what she did. This time, this time we all know, he lost the game. He was captured. He was imprisoned. They gouged out his eyes. They made him a servant. And he wound up in the prison in Gaza where he was grinding grain like the oxen were used to do and go round and round and round and work all day to run the mill. This is Samson. And now the Bible surprises us because now Samson is really ready. He's finally ready to be the savior of his people. Amazingly. This part of the story is very hard to understand. Why did God allow this to happen? But you know the picture. The people of the Philistines are very happy. They they got rid of this, this one superman. He's no longer in control, so they can do as they please. But they're surprised to find out that it's not quite like that because Though they are raising the victory noise, all the people come together in the temple in Ashdod, and there's some 3,000 people sitting on the roof alone, so the whole building is just filled with people all rejoicing, and they say, let's have a little fun with Samson, and so they get someone to go way down the Gaza and get Samson out of the prison and bring him and put him into the temple so that they can all jeer at him. And so Samson comes in completely helpless. You have to realize that there's there's no more of anything left in this man. He's blind. He has to ask a little boy to guide him so he can get into the temple and maybe find a place to stand and rest and hold himself up. He's been working hard and he's not getting any food. Here stands Samson, weak and blind and helpless, and in the middle of that picture, we find God's power, but Samson says to the boy, let me touch the pillars, one on one hand, one on the other, and he prays to God, one more time, Lord, one more time, use me, and God hears his prayer, amazingly so, and you know what happened, right? That temple goes down because Samson with all the might that God now gave him specially, tears down the building and everything tumbles down. Samson dies with the Philistines and he kills more people of the Philistine might in that one day than he did in all his life. Now notice that this death is very rare This is not what God normally does among the people of Israel. But in this case, he did. And as the birth of Samson kind of longingly looked forward to another birth, so the death of Samson longingly looks forward to another death, a death of someone who also is helpless, imprisoned, beaten, Denied. Rejected. Forgotten. All by himself. And finally nailed to a cross. Helpless. Totally at the mercy of his enemies. And there he hangs. And he says, My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Now we all know and sometimes we even sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels because this was not the helpless Samson, but the mighty son of God. Yet he chose to hang there helpless and he did not cry for those angels. But he gave his life to save us, to save our world to take care of all those who would oppose God's kingdom and bring them to nothing. That is death, Satan, hell itself. All our sins, all that's wrong with our world are buried in the death of Jesus forever, forever. And now he is King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't quite understand the story. I don't know how that's possible. I mean, it's just nothing like a human story at all. This is a divine story. But we're celebrating today that story. In fact, this is the story that gives us life, both here and forever. And it is that which is so precious, even in the death of Samson already, that we can see that this is God's plan. He doesn't destroy power with power, the way we know it. Like, if we could give enough power to the Ukrainians, maybe we could get rid of that, in Russia. But that's not the way God works. The world uses power. God uses His presence. His spirit, that's His spiritual power. And it's not the power that we, as human beings, have naturally. It can only come from God. And He calls us to take that power as the power in our life. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is is the the festival of no power, (laughs) if you will. The festival of no abuse of power, but the rejoicing in the presence of the God of all power, who is mightier than even the mightiest of all the forces in the universe. He is, after all, the creator of all power. But he doesn't have to use it. In fact, he refuses to use it. And he lets us find out what his power really means. The fellowship of life and joy and happiness.